Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. If you would get your Bibles out and open them up to the Old Testament to 2 Samuel chapter 6. 2 Samuel, the sixth chapter, that's where we're going to begin in just a moment. Going to read some verses there that'll help to set up everything that we want to talk about today from the Word of God. 2 Samuel, the sixth chapter. As you're turning there and as you're getting settled in for this part of our worship, I will just uh, echo the welcome from earlier and say how great it is to see everybody today. And we do have guests in our midst and we are thankful for your presence and we hope that you are encouraged by the things that we are uh, involved in this first day of the week. But more importantly than all that, we hope that God is glorified and I hope that God will be glorified even right now as we open up and study from His Word. In 2 Samuel, the sixth chapter, read with me if you will, beginning in verse 16. In 2 Samuel 6, and in verse 16, this is not a super familiar passage, but I think it well establishes what I want to talk about today. In 2 Samuel 6, beginning in verse 16, As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out the window, and she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. And so they brought in the ark of the Lord, and they set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering, offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. And he distributed amongst all the people the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed each to his house. Verse 20 now. And David returned to bless his household. But Michael, the daughter of Saul, David's wife, she came out to meet David and she said, how the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michael, It was before the Lord, the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord. And I will make Mary before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. Well, isn't that just the sweetest passage to read right here on Valentine's Day? On the one day of the year when couples tend to go out of their way to show and demonstrate their love for one another, we get to open up the Bible and we get to read about a married couple having a big, nasty fight. And that's exactly what we're reading there. We're reading about a fight between David and Michael. Here's Michael. She doesn't like seeing her husband celebrating and dancing out in public in her eyes, making a fool of himself in front of others. And then David, in response to that, says, Frankly, I don't care what you think. I was doing that for the Lord. I'm celebrating before the Lord. I'm going to keep on doing what I'm doing. You add all that up, what you have is you have the perfect recipe for a big, ugly argument right there recorded for us in the pages of Scripture. And whether you want to label it as a marital argument or maybe you want to call that a spat or maybe you want to use some cutesy term like a lover's quarrel or maybe the legal jargon, a domestic dispute, whatever you want to call it, the truth is all married couples are going to have disagreements. And all married couples from time to time are going to have conflict. You take two people who are genetically and emotionally and mentally different, 
and you then stick them under the same roof and you tell them to live together and to love each other and to stay you know, connected and united until death do you part, you can bet your bottom dollar at some point along the way in that journey, there's going to be a disagreement or two bound to happen. And if anybody dares come up to me after service and say, well, Josh, let me tell you about my marriage. We never have... Spare me. Just spare me right now. I won't believe it even if you say it. I don't care how perfect and ideal you think that your marriage is. All married couples, the sad reality is, all married couples have disagreements. In fact, Henry Ford once famously said, if two people always agree, then one of them is useless. And I think there's probably some measure of truth to that. Differences of opinion and personality clashes and misunderstandings, they are bound to occur in every relationship. And unfortunately, those differences can lead to arguments, to fusses and to fights. Now those arguments can either A, be big nasty blow-ups, like the one that we just read about between David and Michael, where bad attitudes take over and hurt feelings end up being the product. Or B, those arguments can be handled in a godly manner, in a respectable manner, so that neither party is left scarred and that husband and that wife can then work through their differences and carry on and be the married couple that God would have them to be. As you can probably guess this morning, I'd like to talk about option B for just a little while. I want to talk about some of the rules and some of the things that the Bible says about fighting fairly in marriage. And I hope nobody's going to be thrown off by that title in any kind of way. It really is not so much a, you know, saying that, hey, married couples ought to be glad that they have fights and God is pleased when we have fights. Absolutely not. God is not pleased with that. God's not happy about that. But it is acknowledging the reality of what happens when we do get married. And this evening, Lord willing, come back at 6 o'clock, I want to talk about some of these same ideas, these same principles as it pertains to conflict within the Lord's church. How do we deal with disagreements and arguments that happen between brothers and sisters in Christ? But this morning, it's about marriage. And it is my belief that when we fight, oftentimes what happens is is we end up resorting to, to unfair In fact, sometimes even dirty tactics, the kind of tactics that end up creating resentment and ill will, the kind of tactics that lead to broken hearts and maybe even to broken homes, the kind of tactics that cause everybody to come out losers in the end. And so this morning, this is kind of a leftover sermon from last year's sermon theme on marriage matters. I had all these lessons lined up and I got to looking at the calendar and I said, you know what? I'm saving that one for February the 14th. It falls on a Sunday next year. And so this morning I do want to talk about how we deal with disagreements and arguments within marriage. If you're not married this morning and maybe don't even have any intention of getting married, these are principles that you want to keep in mind and you want to put into play in all human relationships, in all of our dealings with others. But the focus this morning is especially on marriage. What does the Bible say that will help us? And the passage that I want to go and get some of that help from is in Ephesians the fourth chapter. Would you find Ephesians chapter 4 please? In Ephesians chapter 4, this is just where we'll be for the remainder of the study, so just kind of get settled over here in the back half of Ephesians chapter 4. If you are familiar with Ephesians the fourth chapter, then you probably already know, Josh, this passage doesn't say anything about marriage. There's not a single word said in these verses about husbands and wives and that relationship. And I understand that. 
But what Ephesians 4 does contain are principles and guidelines for how we handle human interactions and human relationships and how the kind of conduct that we need to have that would be befitting of a child of God. And so let's just read these verses. Then I want to draw out the applications from it. In Ephesians the fourth chapter, Paul says this beginning in verse 25. In Ephesians 4 and verse 25, he says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. There are, in this passage, I believe, at least seven rules for a fair fight. Seven rules that I want to pull out of these verses. Seven rules that a sometimes hot-headed husband needs to be reminded of. Seven rules that regardless of where you are in that journey, whether you're a newlywed or whether you've been married for years and years, seven rules that we need to be mindful of regularly so that we can weather the storms of marital disagreement. And that all begins with rule number one. Rule number one, taken out of verse 25, is that we need to keep it honest. You're having a fight, you need to keep it honest. Look at verse 25 again. Paul says, put away falsehood. He says, speak the truth with your neighbor. That is a verse that really is all about honesty, isn't it? In fact, I really would call your attention to the word that's used there, the word neighbor. You know, we see the word neighbor and maybe what immediately comes to our mind is we get to thinking about the guy who lives next door or the people who live in our subdivision. Hey, that's our neighbor. Okay, that's our definition of neighbor. But biblically, the word neighbor just simply means one who is nearby. One who is nearby. Can I ask you, is there anyone who is more nearby to you than your spouse? The very person with which you share a bed each night. You live under the same roof every single day. There's not anybody who is a closer neighbor to you than your spouse. And as such, Paul says they deserve your honesty. We're not going to lie to one another. We're not going to withhold the truth. Not going to withhold part of the truth. Not going to withhold half of the truth. No, we're not going to intentionally mislead one another about things. No, instead we're going to be open with one another. We're going to only speak words that are truthful. We're going to be honest with each other all of the time. And I believe that when husbands and wives make that commitment right out of the gate, we're going to make a commitment to honesty, then whenever disagreements do arise, then honesty is going to help to keep those arguments from becoming more inflamed than they ought to be. I'm thinking, for example, here about some of the terminology that we use when we argue. When we say things like, you always fill in the blank. Or you never fill in the blank. 
Can I ask, when we say those things, you always do that or you never do that, is that ever really true? I'm going to guess that like 99.99999% of the time, those are not true statements. Those are falsehoods. Those are lies. That's not being honest. That's taking maybe some liberties with the truth. And what does that do? That just fans the flame of the argument even more, which just causes the fire to just burn more and more intensely. What I need to do, what my spouse needs to do, is to just stick with stating the truth. Nothing more and certainly nothing less. And can I also add right here that how we speak that truth, that that is equally important. If you're familiar with Ephesians chapter 4, then you probably also know verse 15. Would you back up in the text? In Ephesians 4 and verse 15, Paul says there, we are to speak the truth in love. That says to me that I need to be very, very careful with how I speak the truth with my wife, particularly whenever we are arguing. That means I need to be sensitive. I need to be sympathetic because sometimes, sometimes when I'm speaking the truth, that can hurt. I've noted before many times about my wife and her stinky socks being scattered and littered throughout our house. I could come home on any afternoon and I could just blast her. These stinking socks are everywhere! Pick them up. I'm sick of seeing them. They're sneaking up the house. I'm just sick of all of this. Let me ask you, am I speaking the truth when I say that? Yeah, I am speaking the truth when I say that. But am I speaking the truth in love? Doesn't sound very loving, does it? My wife does deserve the truth from me all of the time. And she especially deserves the truth when we are arguing. But she deserves to have that truth presented to her in a loving manner. If I fail to do that, if I fail to keep it honest and to keep it honest in a loving way, then I'm not fighting fair. Which brings me to rule number two as we look at the text again. And that is, we need to keep it under control. When we're arguing, we need to keep things under control. Would you look at the first part of verse 26? Paul says there to be angry and do not sin. That verse tells us, actually tells us several things. It's very instructive for us. It tells us, first of all, that anger is not always sinful. We are permitted to be angry in certain situations. In fact, I think I could make a biblical argument that there are some things that we must be angry about. Angry about sin and about unrighteousness. But what this verse does not permit for us is uncontrolled anger. Unchecked anger. Temper tantrums, blowing a gasket, having ourselves a fit of rage. Those kinds of unchecked emotions that end up leading to hurtful words being spoken and sometimes even leads to dishes and vases being broken. That kind of stuff is a nuisance to our society. Our court system is constantly filled up with domestic disturbances, domestic violence. Because in the heat of battle, what happened? A husband or a wife, or maybe the husband and the wife. They allowed their passions to become inflamed. They began to shout and to scream. There was no checking of the emotions. They didn't keep it under control. And as a result, things got out of control. That's not fighting fair. And as Christians, we most certainly need to do better than that. And unfortunately, sometimes folks get to thinking that, well, I, just, I really just can't do any better. 
You've met people before. I've met people before who just regularly have outbursts of anger. They just lash out at folks. And what's their immediate response about that when you confront them about it? They say, I just can't help it. That's just who I am. That's just the way that I was raised. That's just kind of what comes out of me. I explode. And it's all over. Yeah. Put a loaded shotgun in the hand of a little child. It'll explode. It'll be all over. That very same idea goes for the irreparable damage that is often done when couples argue and they allow their emotions to get in the driver's seat. We say things and we do things that end up leaving permanent scars and wounds. When anger goes uncontrolled, instead of dealing with the problem at hand, what ends up happening is we we stop working towards a solution for this thing that caused the problem in the first place and now what we're working toward is we're working toward victory. I just want to win this war. This battle that we are engaged in, that's what I'm concerned about. I want to win the fight. And when that happens, we end up resorting to all kinds of just terribly wicked things. We resort to personal attacks. Say things like, you're just stupid. You're a jerk. You're ugly. We end up saying just dumb things that we, when we stop and think about it, we don't even mean them. When we say things like, I wish I'd never even married you. I don't ever want to see your face again. We drum up things from the past, things that we thought were forgiven and buried and moved past. We start pulling out that heavy artillery. And we're doing the name calling. And we're offering out baseless accusations and all those painful memories of the things of yesteryear. And we're just gunning our spouse with that stuff. The goal is no longer fix the problem. No, the goal is now win the war. Is it any wonder that James would write in James chapter 3 and in verse 8 that the untamed tongue, the uncontrolled tongue, that it is a restless evil full of deadly poison. We've got to get a rein on our emotions. And that's a whole separate lesson for a whole separate time. But if that means biting my tongue, if that means holding my breath, if that means counting to ten or to a hundred, if that means just kind of stepping away and going in the other room and kind of having some quiet time, maybe best of all, maybe what that should mean is I'm going to just pause and I'm going to go to God in prayer. I'm going to ask my Father for some help here. Then whatever it takes, that's what I need to do. Because I love my spouse too much to do something that might cause permanent damage to our relationship. And we don't, when we don't keep it under control then we're never going to end up having a fair fight. Which will bring me to rule number three. And that is, when we argue and when we disagree, we need to keep it timed right. There's some timing things that need to be brought to the forefront. Would you look at the first part of verse 26? Verse 26, Paul says there, Do not let the sun go down on your anger, then verse 27, and give no opportunity to the devil. I think what Paul is getting at here is that our timing is extremely crucial whenever there is conflict between us and another person. Alright, you, you got angry at your spouse. Maybe you kept it under control. Maybe you didn't. It's in the past now. Can't do anything about it. Can't change that now. The question now is, what are you going to do in this moment? What are you going to do right now? Are you going to take those bitter feelings and just kind of just kind of brood over them? You're going to allow them to fester and boil up inside? You're going to take all those hard feelings and allow them to maybe even harden and build up just a big wall of resentment inside? 
You're going to just slam the door to your bedroom. She's going to go in that room. She's going to slam the door there. And you're not going to talk about this for hours or days or maybe even weeks or months. Or do you go to your spouse and you say, Hey, we need to sit down and work on this. We need need to talk about this. We need to get this out in the open. And we need to follow those first few rules. and, And we need to get this taken care of. I'm afraid that if we let this go overnight or if we let this go for days and let this drag out that it's just going to make matters worse. The last thing that I want to do is for us to just allow time to pass and then we just pretend that nothing ever happened. That is until the next time this happens again. We need peace. We need real peace. The Bible in a number of places, I'm thinking of a lot of verses in the Proverbs, that talk about how we need to take care of disagreement sooner rather than later. Because the danger is, if we allow it to go unresolved for long stretches of time, that we become an easy target for the devil. I think that's exactly why Paul puts verse 27 immediately after verse 26. Don't give an opportunity to the devil. If you give the devil an opportunity, he will gladly seize upon it. He will gladly help you to build your big giant walls of resentment. He will thoroughly assist you in harboring those deep-seated grudges. And that's exactly why timing is so critical here. Because the quicker that we can reach a resolution, then the quicker we can stop the activity of the devil in our lives. Now I realize and I understand that sometimes, sometimes an argument can be so heated between spouses that maybe it is imperative that we actually do kind of go our separate ways for a moment. We do kind of go into that room, and I'm going to go over here in this room. We're going to kind of take some time apart because we need to clear our heads. We need to let those emotions and those passions kind of die down a little bit. It's taken me a long time to learn that, and I'm still trying uh, to learn that. I'm the guy who wants to be the fixer, and I want to fix the problem within like the next five seconds after it's taken place, and I don't want to wait a second longer. But I've come to realize, yeah, that just doesn't always work. Sometimes I need to have some patience. And I need to realize that right this second, that just isn't the best time. The timing just, the timing is off. And so I need to wait. I need to wait for that right moment. I need to wait for that moment that the Proverbs writer talks about in Proverbs 15 and verse 23. The moment where I can speak a word in due season. A word in due season, how good it is. That doesn't mean we're going to let this thing just drag on and on and on for all of eternity. But it does mean that we're going to make sure that the timing is right so that we can reach a peaceful resolution together. I think that is so critical, so important in order to fight fairly in marriage. Which brings us to rule number four. And that is when there is disagreement, we need to make certain that we keep it positive. That we keep things positive. Would you look at verse 28? Look at verse 28 again. This verse might seem out of place. Let the thief no longer steal. But rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Now at first glance you're probably thinking, Josh, how in the world does that verse apply to this sermon? Paul's talking about stealing here. He's talking about, you know, don't be involved in stealing. He's not talking about how to manage marital conflict. And I thoroughly recognize that. But what really interests me in this verse is the way that Paul kind of phrases things. Did you notice that Paul phrases this command, first of all, with a negative statement, don't steal. Stealing is wrong, stealing is bad. But then Paul follows that right up with a 
positive statement, a positive solution. What's the solution to stealing? Well, the solution to stealing is get a job, go to work, put in an honest day's work for a fair day's wage so that you can then share with others who are in need. Do you see what Paul did there? Paul identifies a problem, but he then offers a positive and constructive solution to fixing that problem. Now here's what I'm wondering. I'm wondering how many times in our arguments with our spouse are we very quick to point out all the problems. We point out all the negative things. We're just pointing that finger and we're just making that thing work overtime. All the bad stuff that's going on here. We harp on all that stuff, pour out a big old bucket of criticisms. But then in the end, we completely forget. Or we just totally neglect to offer up anything that is positive and constructive. Well, how's that going to help? It ain't going to help at all. You think about it. How many here thinks that if you were given the right tools that you could just demolish this entire church building? How many here thinks that you could do that if you were given the right tools to do that? I tell you this, I think I could do it. You give me a jackhammer and a bulldozer and some of those other fun pieces of equipment that I'll probably never be allowed to touch in my lifetime. You give me rain over some of that stuff, I could tear this place down in no time. Because the fact of the matter is, tearing down is easy. But let me ask you this. How many people here think that they could build this place from the ground up? Oh, we got just an empty lot here. Who here thinks that they could start from square one and build this building up? I mean, do everything. Pouring the foundation, framing it, putting in the plumbing, doing the electric work, laying the brick, all that stuff. How many here could do that? There's a couple that could do that. But probably not very many of us could do that. And the reason for that is, is because tearing down is so easy. And building up is very challenging. And as true as that is in construction work, it is even more true when it comes to marriage. It is very easy for me to holler at my wife and to fuss at her about all the things that I see that are wrong and the things that need to be fixed. And Here's this problem and here's that problem. Why are we running late again? What's taking you so long getting everything together? Come on, get it together. Easy to do that. The challenge though is to find a way for me to be maybe critical and address the problem, but then also be constructive and offer something positive at the same time. Hey, we're running late. Is there something I can do to help here? Can I help get Hattie ready? Can I get Gertie ready? Can I grab your bags and get all these things together? That, it seems like that might work a little better, wouldn't it? That's offering something constructive with something that's a problem. In fact, that's what verse 29 says, that our job is to build one another up. Would you look at verse 29 again? Verse 29 says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Instead of every other sentence coming out of my mouth being a disparaging remark or a harsh criticism, Paul says, how about we say something edifying? How about we offer some gracious words? How about we do some encouraging? Because I will tell you that even from my still relatively limited experience as a husband, I have found that it is a lot more productive when you make an effort to keep things positive. That is a benchmark of fighting fairly. 
Which brings you to rule number five. In many ways, this might be the most important rule of all, but I'm going to keep it in the logical order. And rule number five is this, and that is when we're fighting, we need to keep the Lord in mind. Look at verse 30 again. In verse 30, Paul says there, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. You know, as Christians, as the people of God, we bear God's seal. We belong to Him. We are His children, His sons and His daughters. He is our Father. How do you think God feels whenever He sees His children, one of His sons and one of His daughters, doing things that are wrong? You know, for those of you that are parents, how do you feel whenever your kids act up? You maybe give them direct commands, you give them instructions on what to do, and then they turn around and they they just don't do it at all. Or they end up doing the exact opposite of that. How do you feel about that? What, what, What kind of emotions flood your soul when your children disobey? Well, generally speaking, it just hurts, doesn't it? It's upsetting. It causes you pain. It causes you sorrow. It grieves parents when the children that they love so much carry on and act up and they misbehave and do things that are wrong. And if you can get some sense of how that feels as a parent, then maybe in some sense you can get an idea of how God is grieved when He sees His children acting up. It grieves His spirit to see His sons Christian husbands who yell and scream at their wives every time that she burns the toast. It grieves God's Spirit when He sees Christian wives who nag and rail against everything that their husband is trying to do. It hurts the Lord. It hurts Him a lot. You know, I read verse 30 and I almost kind of picture the Lord up in heaven just shedding a tear every time that He sees His children acting ugly and untoward. God grieves. What a, what a sobering thought that is. I, I don't want to grieve the Lord. I don't want to grieve His Spirit. You know, I certainly don't want to intentionally do things that are going to cause my wife grief. But even more so, I don't want to be involved in things that grieve my Creator. And I think maybe if we just thought about that more, if maybe that thought just flooded our mind, if there was some way to kind of keep that at the forefront of our minds. I'm I'm not a big fan of of tattoos, but I've got some Christian friends who've gotten tattoos like on their hand. I have a friend who got a tattoo on the inside of one of their fingers. And it was a Bible verse. And I asked them what was kind of the meaning behind that. And that is, the reason they told me is they said they wanted that verse that they always had somewhere. Whenever they're in any situation, they can always look down at their hand. And they can be reminded of the Lord. You're reminded of who they ought to be. I kind of like that. I'm not telling you to go out and get a tattoo. But maybe there's something that we can do. Hey, I see my Bible sitting there. That needs to remind me. The Lord sees me here. The Lord sees how I'm acting to my wife. The Lord is not pleased with what He sees there. My Heavenly Father. My Heavenly Father wants me to act differently than that. If husbands and wives can develop that kind of a mindset, that marriage is designed to be a living sacrifice to the Lord, That is, that this relationship, it primarily exists to bring greater glory and greater honor and greater praise to the God of heaven. When we have that in mind, then what problem is there that we can't overcome? What argument is there that cannot be handled in a godly manner whenever we allow the Lord to be kept in mind and He's going to be the one to dictate and govern all of our actions and our attitudes and our words? I'm going to say to you this morning that the only kind of fair fight 
is one where the Lord is being kept in mind. Which brings us to rule number six. And that is, when you're having a fight, you need to keep it private. You need to try as best we can to keep that private. Look at verse 31. Paul gives just a big old list there of just rotten attitudes, bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, and malice. And what's he say about all of that? He says, put it away. You need to get that out. Put all that junk to the side. That has no place in the life or in the heart of a Christian, especially as it relates to the husband and wife relationship. It has no place being brought out for others to see. We need to get rid of it. And certainly if we can't get rid of it, last thing we want to do is go traipsing that out in front of everybody else. There's a couple of terms there that I would actually call our attention to specifically. Would you look at the term there uh, that talks about some very outward and public unhappiness towards someone else? There's the word clamor. That's the idea there of loud, boisterous, angry, shouting, the kind of thing that's intended to draw attention. And there's even that word as well, the word slander. It carries with it just the very idea of publicly ridiculing someone, demeaning someone, insulting another person in a public way to other individuals. There's no place for that sort of thing. No place for that sort of thing in any facet of life. But I don't know what it is about married folks where it just seems as if husbands and wives, we just almost kind of major in airing our dirty laundry in front of other folks. Wherever they go, just kind of just kind of pick my big bag of dirty laundry up and throw it over my shoulder. I'm going to carry it wherever I go and make sure that everybody sees all the dirty laundry in our house. You know what the deal is with married folks. Why do we do that? You've seen people like that? Go down to Walmart. I was in Walmart a couple of months ago. And there was a woman standing in the cereal aisle shouting at her husband, telling him how sorry he was. You are so sorry. Cletus was his name. I couldn't forget it. You're so sorry, Cletus. I don't know if it was true or not, but I'll tell you this. That was uncomfortable for me. That was embarrassing. I didn't want to be a part of that. That didn't seem to be like anything that was my business at all. I just wanted a box of Cinnamon Toast Crunch. But that happens, doesn't it? In fact, even if it's not happening in some kind of public, outward way like that, we have, we have lots of other avenues where that happens today. I think about what a nuisance social media is for this kind of thing. Husband or a wife upset at the other, I'm going to go on social media and just kind of say something about it. And even if I don't say something about it in very specific terms, I'll just say it in some kind of passive-aggressive way where it's clear he knows I'm talking about him and my friends, they know what I'm talking about. Or of course, even if it doesn't happen in that fashion, maybe it's just I've got friends that I'm going to go to and I'm going to tell them about all of our problems and I'm going to rally all kinds of troops to my cause over here. Going to do things in a way to publicly shame or publicly embarrass my spouse in order to somehow get my way in the end. That is not the way of Christ. Anybody who fights like that out in public has way too much bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander and malice in their life. All those things are just telltale signs, aren't they? That stuff needs to be minimized and privatized, not maximized and publicized. And somebody's going to say, well, Josh, what about, what about maybe seeking and soliciting the help of others? Maybe going to a counselor, maybe a licensed therapist. We want to bring them into the equation. And certainly there might be a place for that. 
Maybe we go to somebody who is a therapist and try to have some couples therapy. Maybe we just go to a, a, an older couple and we're going to have them sit down with us, a godly couple, and we're just going to talk with them and try to air some things out and bounce some ideas off of them. I think there's a place for all of that. But most of the time, we want to keep our marital differences between us and the Lord. This is not a broadcast for all of the world to see. We don't want to ruin our influence, ruin our example. A fair fight is the kind that's going to be kept private. Which brings me seventhly and finally, as we're working towards some resolution to the conflicts that sometimes exist, rule number seven is, is we need to keep things cleaned up. Keep it cleaned up. When the argument's over... When all's been said and done, the dust has settled and the smoke is cleared, we want to clean that big mess up by doing what verse 32 talks about. And that is by being kind to one another and being tender-hearted toward one another and forgiving each other. I like that. In many ways, it's kind of a three-prong you know, formula for success. Kindness carries with it the idea of doing good, doing something useful for others, whether they deserve it or not. doesn't matter whether they deserve it. And if that means for me, at the end of that argument, I'm going to now go out and I'm going to buy my wife a dozen roses, or I'm going to go do something special for her because I just need to show her that I love her, then that's what I need to do. And it doesn't matter if she called me a red-headed idiot. I probably was being a red-headed idiot, but I'm going to be kind. And then tenderheartedness. That, of course, carries with it the idea of empathy and compassion, feeling with another person. That means that if my wife and I, in the heat of argument, maybe something that I said causes her to, to cry, to become emotional and to weep, then tenderheartedness says, I'm going to go and pull myself up right next to her. I'm going to put my arm around her. And I'm going to weep with her. I'm going to feel those emotions with her. And then, of course, greatest of all is forgiveness. You can't talk about forgiveness without talking about the greatest illustration of forgiveness, and that is the forgiveness of Jesus. You know, Jesus came to this earth and didn't do a single thing wrong. And yet He was mistreated, He was persecuted, was ultimately nailed to a cross. And what did He do in response to all of that? Did He lash out in anger? Did He return back, retaliate, give as good as He got? Did he ask the Father, Father, I want vengeance and I want it now? No. In fact, while on the cross itself, it is Jesus who uttered those words, Father, forgive them. You know what impresses me about that? We get into our arguments with our spouses and we refuse to forgive our spouse many times on the basis of, I was right. I, I, was, I was the one that was in the right. And yet Jesus, while He was on the cross, He was absolutely in the right. If ever anybody was right, He was right, and yet He was still willing to extend forgiveness. Now if Jesus can forgive the very people who crucified Him, then can we not forgive our spouses for the, let's just be honest, the very trivial things that we oftentimes fuss and argue over? Can't we follow the example of our Savior? Can't we just put those things in the past and move forward? You know, answer this question. Don't need to answer it out loud, but answer it to yourself and you'll know exactly what you need to do when you argue with your spouse. How many times do you want God to forgive you? 
You got a number? How many times do you want God to forgive you? Whatever that number is, that's how many times you need to forgive your spouse. However often, however much you want God's forgiveness, that's how much forgiveness you need to be ready to extend to your spouse. And I realize that many times we don't want to be the one who goes and says, I was in the wrong. I did the wrong thing there. I'm sorry. You don't want to be the one who puts your pride away and waves the white flag of surrender. You may not want to be the one who admits, you know what, that was my fault. It was. The whole thing was my fault. But when you truly love your spouse, and when you love others the way that God loves us, then you're going to do exactly what you need to do to get that mess cleaned up. Kindness, tenderheartedness, and forgiveness so that your marriage can go forward. and You can be the kind of husband or you can be the kind of wife that God expects you to be. Now, I will not lie to you this morning. Tiffany and I, we certainly have had our fair share of spats and arguments and disagreements in the, we're working on year number 12, the years that we've been married. And I do expect that if the Lord allows us to live a little while longer here upon this earth, that we will probably have, we'll probably have some more arguments before it's all said and done. And while that might be discouraging to think about that, yeah, that's, that's going to happen, that's kind of a reality I'm okay with that. I'm okay with knowing that that is going to happen from time to time. And the reason that I'm okay with that is because I know that I have a resource. I have been given a guidebook. I've been given an instruction book on how to work through that and how to deal with that and how to come out of it in the end maybe even better than when we started. And that's why I am so very thankful for passages like Ephesians chapter 4. Because even though I've still got a lot to learn in this husband department, Ephesians 4 provides me with the kind of wisdom and instruction that will help me to grow to be the kind of husband that I ought to be. I'm certainly not perfect, but God's Word is. And if I'll just trust what His Word says, I can be exactly what the Lord wants me to be. With that thought in mind, perhaps there's somebody here this morning who has yet to place their trust in God and in His Word and become everything that God wants you to be. You need to know this morning that the opportunity is available to you. In fact, can I close with the closing statement of chapter 4, verse 32? Forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. That passage tells us that there is forgiveness to be obtained in Christ. Do you need that forgiveness? Do you need to be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins? There is a pool of water right behind me. There are garments in these rooms to the side. And there are people here who are ready to assist you in becoming obedient to the gospel of Jesus Christ so that you can become one of God's children. You can get on that path that leads to heaven. Can we help you to do that today? If you are a Christian, but you've not been what you ought to be, brother or sister, it may be that in your marriage you've not been the kind of spouse that you should be. It may be just in your daily life, in your other human interactions and relationships, you're just not being what a Christian is supposed to be. Let's clean that up. Let's get that fixed. Let's come to God in humility. Let's pray. Let's seek the help of our brothers and sisters. And if we can, encourage you today to serve the Lord in a better way, then we do stand ready to assist you as well. Whatever your need may be, you simply need to come to the front and make that known. Do that right now while we stand and while we sing.